This is Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now. The axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all that he locked up John in prison. Grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. So, for two full chapters now, in chapters one and chapters two of the Gospel of Luke, we've been working hard to show that the testimony of all of these people is pointing to the reality of Jesus Christ showing up and the amazing event that is going on with Jesus being born. And so, now that we have covered those two chapters, we're going to enter chapter three and take a left turn and start talking about. John the Baptist. And so, for those of you, if you've been here every week for the nine sermons out of those first two chapters, 
and have heard how every time we show up on a Sunday morning and Darren talks a lot about Jesus, it's all about Jesus, it's all about Jesus. Thankfully today, we're going to get off Jesus and go on to John the Baptist. Just not really, just kidding. We're not going to do that. That's not what we're going to do. Because the reality is, John the Baptist shows up and guess what? He points to Jesus. This whole book, this whole book, it's not about you. It's not about any certain uh, magic spells. This whole book, this Bible, is about God, is about Jesus Christ. And yes, even the Gospel of Luke, even John the Baptist, is the whole goal coming out of here of John the Baptist is to point us to the reality of the greatness of Jesus Christ. It's interesting, at the beginning of chapter 3, if you still got your Bible out, there's all these details Luke is a very um, a ferocious uh, historian. He talks about in the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and there's all these things he's laying out, saying and making note of these events happen in real time. This is not the uh, people from antiquity creating a myth, writing some fanciful story about, well, you know, wait, once upon a time, this happened. Uh, they're not writing that way. And Luke is not writing his gospel as some sort of myth. He's tying it down to space and time, to real history. John the Baptist and Jesus showing up is not some creative fairy tale. It is based upon history. Christianity is not about um, a thought experiment, some myth trying to create a, a way to make people live better and be better. Christianity is about an event in real space and time. It is about God's workings all throughout history, from creation to fall to the redemption of Israel found in Jesus Christ to the final consummation that is one day really and truly and honestly going to happen when Jesus returns. Christianity is centered around reality, history. And you can go back and you can find these dates and in fact, there was controversy for quite a while that people thought Luke had got this wrong. That, that he had, he had uh, I'm not going to bother you with all the details, but that he had a couple of the guys mixed up. And they thought for a long time, Luke just, you know, wasn't that great of a historian, had trouble. But they went and a guy was going around doing archaeological digs and found this marker that had these details that history had, had been lost to history except for the writings of Luke and then this archaeological discovery that pointed to the reality of Luke was a very astute uh, historian. And that this can be dated back to the years between 27 29 AD. There's some debate on when exactly this is. But Jesus Christ showing up is history, is reality. We do not worship Jesus as some sort of mythical figure that we talk about in some sort of fairy tale. This is real history. John the Baptist shows up, Jesus shows up, and we're tying this to real history. And we see clearly that the whole point of John the Baptist is to point to Jesus. The whole, why John the Baptist? What's that all about? Well, we could talk about a lot of things with John the Baptist, but the one big thing and one big reality that John the Baptist showed up to do was to point to Jesus. You see this at the end of our text that we read in verse 16. They're coming and asking if John might be the Christ. And John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now he's not just talking about like untying his shoes. 
That was in, in antiquity, if you know, if, you, if you've heard before, the idea of cleaning their sandals was reserved for slaves only. In the scene at the upper room where Jesus washes the disciples' feet, feet, not plural, feet, sorry, <laughs> washes their feet, is a very demeaning job because the, when they walked around their open shoes in, in streets that were occupied with animals and people, your feet became filthy. And so the idea to come into a house and the person that would untie your shoes wasn't the owner, wasn't the people you were going to socialize with. With This was reserved for the lowest of the low. The, the slave in the house would show up and they would do the disgusting job of untying your sandals. John the Baptist is, is pointing to Jesus so much, he's saying that, listen, the guy who's coming after me, I'm below the person who unties his sandal. His greatness is so great that I'm not even big enough deal to be able to untie his sandal. John the Baptist, the whole point of him showing up is to point to Jesus. We see this clearly in John chapter 1, in John's, the, the apostles' account of John the Baptist. When he talks about this reality of J- John the Baptist in John's gospel, this is where he claims and he points to Jesus, he's, Jesus and he says that this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When they came to John in verse 26 of chapter 3 in the gospel of John, they came to John and they said, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given from him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He, speaking of Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. So John the Baptist shows up, and yes, the Gospel of Luke continues on this march of making much of Jesus Christ. I want to note specifically here something amazing happens. One more miraculous event, and you look at verse 2 back in our Luke chapter 3. If you look at verse 2, one more miraculous beginning or miraculous startup happens again. In verse 2 it says, During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. For the past 400 years, God has gone silent. Since the prophet Malachi makes his prophecy. You can read that. It's the last book of your Old Testament. The prophet Malachi gives his prophecy, speaks to the nation of Israel, and then God goes silent. For 400 years, there has been no prophet coming to the people of God. There has been no direct revelation. There has been no word from God. Nothing is that God has gone silent. The heavens have gone silent. And what happens here? God begins to speak again. This, this idea of the Word of God came to John. That's the way they talked about the, the Old Testament prophets. The Word of God would come to them and they would share it. And so here we see something amazing is going on. And what is it? God is beginning to speak again. God's voice is, is coming alive again. Like Zechariah's after John is born, God's voice opens up. 
God's voice opens up, again pointing to the reality that when Jesus is coming on the scene, can I say this enough? Something amazing is going on. Jesus is not just another regular birth. He is something unique. He is something amazing. He is something special. And so the word of God comes, and what does God say? Prophecy begins again. John the Baptist shows up. And what does God begin to say? Well, not much differently than he said all along through the other prophets. We went through the book of Zephaniah, and it was a tough book to get through because the Old Testament prophets, what was their call? Get ready. Prepare yourselves. Repent. God is on his way. Repent. Prepare. God is on his way. And there is not much changing when God's voice begins to speak again through John the Baptist. What does John the Baptist say? Prepare. God is coming. Repent. Be forgiven before it's too late. This is the word. We see this in verses 3 through 6. This message of repent, including the passage there, quoting from the prophet Isaiah. William Hendrickson, in his commentary, puts the interpretation of the Isaiah quote there this way. He says, this is what, this is the summary that he would give it. He's saying that by God's grace, remove every obstacle in the way of the entrance of the Lord into your hearts and lives. Be converted. That God is coming, and he was saying, remove every obstacle, every lofty place, every place where you feel good about yourself, every part where you feel like you're nailing it, lower that down. And all the dark valleys, all the the, um, ways of, of wickedness, of darkness, he's saying fill those things in. Make the path level in your life for God to show up. He is on His way. Prepare. So often in our culture, the concept of Christianity is assumed to be it's a nice complement to our lives, right? Often people are encouraged to become Christians by showing up to church, getting involved there, uh, helping others live the way of Jesus, and showing love and inclusion to all. But the problem with that sort of a, a nicey, nice version of faux Christianity is it misses the whole message of prophets like John the Baptist, which is a call not to just modify your ways, but to repent, to be converted to be forgiven, to be born again. That misses the whole point of the approach of the coming Savior. Misses John the Baptist. It misses passages like Mark chapter 8, 34, where Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Like Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. There is this urgent call coming from John the Baptist to the people of this day, and yet even to us today, to let nothing delay you from the preparations for the coming of the Savior. Every exalted place where you feel so good about yourself needs to come down. And every valley, every darkness that you protect and you keep, it must be filled in. Every crooked way made straight, and every valley, every Rough place made plain. What's the method then of this preparation? It is repentance. A baptism that that was signifying the repentance. What John is offering here is something radical to them. Baptism was around. We kind of read from history books that 
If you were a Gentile convert to Judaism, they would baptize you. They would wash off your filthiness to be converted into Judaism. But what John is doing is he's not out in the Jordan River baptizing Gentile converts into Judaism. He's baptizing everybody. Jews, Gentiles alike, everyone. He is throwing them all into this great big lump. He's calling out not just to the unclean Gentiles, but to everyone that they all need to repent and be baptized. That even Jews, even those who are supposedly in the in camp, need to repent and be baptized. J.C. Ryle says, We must also remember that without repentance, no soul was ever saved. We must know our sins, mourn over them, forsake them, and abhor them, or we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. There is nothing meritorious in this. It forms no part of the price of our redemption. Our salvation is all of grace from first to last, but the great fact still remains that saved souls are always penitent souls, repentant, penitent souls. So three ways that we see repentance comes to us, well, four actually, but we'll, we'll get at least three, maybe four in here. Three ways that John is calling for them to prepare, to repent. The first one is he says, prepare, repent, get ready. And, and to do this, in your repentance, do not assume. In your repentance, do not assume. They say in verse 7, he said to therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. The Jews that were showing up, John the Baptist is a very specific word to them. A word of warning to not presume that since they were externally a part of the people of God, they were in the clear, and by no means is that what he's doing, or allowing that to, them to, to hold on to that thought. The repentance that God is calling for is not one of merely some external ritual. Repentance is an honest change of heart. Now, we don't, in our day and age, say things like, well, I'm a descendant of uh, Cecil, so obviously I'm okay. <laughs> We don't, we, don't, we don't talk about our... I'm part of the Dolichek clan, so I don't, we, don't, we don't say things like that, right? We're not, we, don't, we don't talk about our faith in that way. But in many ways, in our cultural context, we think exactly this way. So I had a conversation with someone a few years ago, and they had, they had raised children, and they'd sent them off, and they had gone to... They lived somewhere else, and gone to another city, and they'd met a boy, and his daughter had gone and met a boy, and they were getting to the point of their relationship was getting so serious that they were starting to meet the family and whatever, and the, the son and the future, maybe son-in-law was coming over, and we were having a conversation, and I just mentioned, I said, you know, well, do you, is the guy a Christian? Have you had the conversation? Does he love Jesus? Do you know? And the answer, coming from this person that I would call to be a Christian, a faithful church attender, and our, you know, I thought, well, you know, in his community, he's a faithful church attender, I thought, well, Surely he would know a good question to ask this guy. Is he a Christian? And the, the man's answer was, well, he was raised in a small town just like ours. Of course he is. I thought, what? huh? <laughs> well, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, but there is, this, there is this cultural context that does exist in our community that is kind of, we're, we're good people. We do nice things. We look out for each other. I mean, when my family has gone through our ordeals the past couple of times in this year, the community has been 
amazing. Support from all sorts, all areas of the, of the community. But the, is that Christianity? Is that Christianity? We ha- live in a place where there is this sort of cultural idea of Christianity. That's the kind of mentality that does exist around here. Are you a Christian because you frequent this church? Are you a Christian because, um, because you serve here, because you've been here for 50 years or so? Is that what makes you a Christian? That is the same claim. Are there people in our community that made me think that way? I'm a Christian. I've gone to this church all my life. Of course I'm a Christian. That is the mentality that John the Baptist is attacking. Philip Graham Ryken, I'm going to warn you, this is how he started his commentary, okay? I'm reading what he said, okay? So don't take this from me. This is how he starts his commentary. He says, you know what you people are? You're all a bunch of hypocrites. You go to church on Sunday, but then you forget about God the rest of the week. You're living a double life. You say that you belong to God, but then you secretly go indulge in all kinds of sinful pleasures. You live in your nice big houses and drive around in your fancy cars, but you never do anything to help the poor. You snakes. Do you really think that God is going to save you just because you've been baptized and belong to an evangelical church? Listen, unless you turn away from your sins, you're going straight to hell. That's a John the Baptist type of message. You feel the, boy, you feel that one? That's got some, but this is what, this is what the preparation for Jesus Christ does, shows up, and it gives this warning to individuals, to people, to you sitting in this pew. This is a call to you from John the Baptist. Do not assume that you are in some sort of safe position because you live in small town Iowa. You, you know, you've been a good person all your life. No, that's not the reality. Are you repentant? Have you turned from your sins? Have you looked to Christ, which we'll get to? But also, do not assume that because the community around you may say nice things about you, that you are truly converted. They do not know you. And do not assume that this world, our community, which is under the sway of darkness in its unsaved reality, and its broken reality, do not assume that just because our community does not condemn you of sins, that you truly have no sins. Can I press on this a little more? Does your sexual ethic get the approval of our world and our community? Is the way that you view marriage, is the way that you view sexuality, is the way that you view gender, is the way that you view all of these things approved by your community? And so then therefore you take, you know, oh, my community likes it, so it must be okay. Does your lust for material possessions get the approval of your community? So everyone else in my community approves of the way that I desire more and more and more and more things. That gets approval. Does your idolatry of family or sports or leisure get the approval of your community? Everyone else does these things. So if my community approves of these things, obviously they're okay. Does your use of alcohol or other substances get the approval of the community? This is the way everyone treats it. That's okay. If the community approves of it, so what? So what? If you're standing before your community is well and good, but before your maker, you are in rebellion, the favor of your community at the end of the day will do nothing for you. Do not assume that your pedigree or your community reputation will count for anything in the eyes of the one true God. John the Baptist's call, don't assume. Every individual sitting under the listening of this voice should not assume. Is my repentance genuine? Am I 
repentant over my sin? Do I hate my sin? Do I run from my sin? Am I convicted over all of these myriads of things that I run to for my satisfaction as opposed to the one true God? Do not assume. The next two are quicker. John the Baptist says, do not presume just because you're children of Abraham that you'll be saved. He also says, do not delay. Right after he says, don't presume, he says that even right now, the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Do not delay. If you've heard me this morning, and if, as I'm listening, the call coming to me as well is to don't assume, don't presume, and don't delay. The imagery is of an axe being laid to the root of a tree, not as though it's leaned up against it. It's when you size the tree up, and you take the axe, and you lay it to the root, and the whole point is, this is where I'm about ready to strike. That's what laying the axe to the root is. And so John the Baptist warns them, do not delay. The warning is clear. Do not think that the axe will lay there long. If you have known sin in your life, and we all do, do not presume that you may have a chance to repent tomorrow. And he also warns them, so he says, do not presume, do not delay, and do not speak only. So these three sections of people come to him asking him what he should do. And he's warning them, don't just say you repent and then go continue on in what you're doing. He's saying, don't let your repentance be speech only. If you have abundance, you should share. If you work, you should be honest. If you are in power, you should not abuse it, but you should use it to serve and speaking to all of these different categories. The general idea is to not let your repentance be talk only. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't pretend that for a moment you can come up here and confess something as repentance with every intention of leaving and doing the exact same thing, that that is somehow genuine repentance. It is not. Don't pretend for a moment you can make a half-hearted confession with every intent to keep on in the sin you're confessing. Now, of course, we will wrestle with sin until the day we die. But real repentance is accompanied with this earnest desire to change, not just the vocabulary, but with our hearts and our actual behaviors. So we do not presume, do not delay, do not speak only, and don't underestimate the importance of this event. I, I, I got to mention this part, verse 17, going on down the line in your Luke uh, he says, his win- speaking of Jesus, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. A winnowing fork. We don't do it this way anymore, but they would get up on the top of a hill, build big walls or you know, a wall about this tall, put all the stuff in the middle, and they take their winnowing fork and they throw the stuff up in the air and nice breeze on top of the hill would blow all the chaff away and all the good stuff would fall and stay in, in, inside, of the, inside of the granary bin or whatever. They'd winnow it. And all of that chaff, everything that does not repent, everything that is worthless, does what, according to John the Baptist? It does go to be burned with unquenchable fire. The reality of hell is real. It's kind of a double statement there, but hell is real. Hell is real. And, and John the Baptist comes on the scene and says, repent, repent. Don't presume, don't delay, don't just do it in words, and don't underestimate the seriousness of this. The chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. This is the tenor of the message from John the Baptist. Preaching this way because this is where we are in the text today. It's a message of seriousness, and it's central to the work of Jesus and the declaration of the gospel. A 19th century 
preacher, Peter Cartwright, was a Methodist revivalist. He once uh, was out preaching, doing a revival service, and Andrew Jackson showed up. And so he's like sitting down at the back, they're singing the hymns or whatever, and somebody comes up and tugs my leg and says, Andrew Jackson's in the crowd, so, you know, just letting you know, you might want to make sure you, you know, make him feel good. Peter Cartwright, that was probably the wrong thing to say to a Methodist revival preacher. So when he stands up, he said, I understand Andrew Jackson is here. I have been requested to be guarded in my remarks. Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he does not repent. That's how he preaches to Andrew Jackson. Does not compromise on the gospel. Does not compromise on the seriousness of the need for repentance. Now, in closing, verse 18, it says this. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Good news. What you've been listening to when we've been talking about the seriousness of your sin and your need to repentance, folks, that's part of the good news. And why is it good news? Because when John's going around proclaiming a baptism of repentance, what's it for? For the forgiveness of sins. The reason why we so ferociously and take seriously the reality of sin is not just to try to beat ourselves up, but with the understanding and the knowledge that with the seriousness of our sin, in repentance of that sin, there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness. John the Baptist pointed to Jesus saying all along, this is good news because we are to be freed from this condemnation through the work of this one who is showing up. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The sharp call to repentance is not alone. I'm not beating you up and saying goodbye. Trying to beat us all up a little bit and say, listen folks, there's good news. There's good news. All of us laid low with the reality of our sinfulness. But there is good news. The call to repentance is not left alone. The call for us to repent, to not assume, to not delay, to not give mouth service, to not take it too seriously. The, the call to all of those things is good news because if you will hear this call, if you'll hear this call, if you'll hear this call and if you will repent, turning from your sinfulness, there is forgiveness. Faith and repentance working in tandem. It's what we are supposed to be doing here at the communion table. Repentance and faith. Confessing our sin, not coming to the table in an unworthy manner. Confessing our sin and looking in faith to the sacrifice of another in our place. In all the ways that we fail and all the ways that we sin, Jesus didn't. He is, as John says, the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And the reason why John's ministry points to Jesus is because Jesus is the one whom the accomplishing of this forgiveness is going to be made possible. In just a few short years, Jesus will suffer and die on the cross as a substitute for sinners. And the wrath that we all deserve, Jesus will take upon himself. He will absorb our wrath that we deserve so that through repentance and faith, everyone listening to me this morning, everyone hearing this, through repentance and faith can be forgiven of your sin and justified, made right in God's sight, and brought back into joyous fellowship with Him, the forgiveness that is won only through Christ. Application straightforward for us today. Let's not assume. Let's not delay. Let's not give lip service only, and let's not pretend like this isn't serious business. 
And then let's not also forget the full forgiveness, the union that is given to us through our Savior, Jesus Christ, and Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, I, I, I ask that your Holy Spirit would give this the appropriate heaviness for all of us. The call is to come and die so that we might truly live. The call to die to our sins is not one of loss only. It is one of getting rid of that which pollutes and corrupts and will earn us your wrath forever in hell. It's a call to die, to get rid of, to turn away from all of that so that we would receive the abundance of your riches through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. God, give us eyes to see it and hearts that rejoice in the fullness of this joy. In Christ's name we pray, amen.